on the on the phone. We started the co- we started the class dealing with uh, painting actually. Right. We went from Umberto Eco, Gilson, and Maritain on painting. We looked at Titian's Cupid and Venere. We looked also at the, the Princess de Spinola of right. Rubens, and we uh, and then from there we we launched into the history of modern philosophy. Right. I think Vico was a central figure. And we want to end with Hegel. And so that's why we thought this uh, Hegel and Beethoven would be a great right. way to end the course. Right. That is a good, a good idea. That's exactly uh, a crucial turning point. Um, to begin with, Hegel and Beethoven were both born in the same year. They were both born in, eight, in 1770. Uh, Hegel went on to become a seminarian in a Lutheran seminary uh, in Germany. And when he was 19 years old, the French Revolution happened. Now, Beethoven is exactly the same age. He's uh, often born. Uh, he's a musical genius. I know this comes as a surprise to you. Uh, <laughs> but um, he, he was, but they were both, both men. The formative event in both men's lives was the French Revolution. And by the French Revolution, I am going to include Napoleon, who had an even, had a, a huge effect on both men as well. So beginning in 1789, all the way up until Napoleon's conquest of Germany, all those principalities, this is the main effect in these people's lives. Now, uh, the other thing is that uh, they are both uh, uh, Christians, and I would say, in some sense, devout Christians. Hegel is studying to be a Lutheran minister. Uh, Beethoven is a Catholic uh, and is involved in music, involved in church music. Uh, both of them have a kind of task here because they suddenly realize how important history is because you're living through, both of them are living through as young men, young impressionable men, historical events. It's as, this is something that's never, something like this has never happened before. So to be specific, uh, we could talk about Napoleon coming through Germany and he abolishes the Holy Roman Empire, which has been in existence for a thousand years. Now this is big news, this is big news. But there's another, there's another aspect here, and this is what I'd like to focus on tonight, uh, is from an aesthetic point of view. Now, you've been, you've been covering Logos Rising, which is a history of ultimate reality. It's a history of metaphysics. And now I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a book on aesthetics. And from an aesthetic point of view, this is a very important time because we now have an enormous breakthrough in terms of mimesis, but in music. That, so you, you're, you're familiar, uh, if you've had the, these lectures, you're familiar with mimesis in painting. What is mimesis? Mimesis is term Aristotle used, it means imitation of nature. That's what the artist does. Aristotle, I think, had a much clearer understanding of what the artist was than Plato. 
Plato felt that the artist was twice removed from reality because he believed, uh, for example, uh, that there was an eternal form somewhere up there that had a bed there, the form of the bed. Uh, and so the craftsman who builds a bed just has that form in mind and he creates an actual bed out of that form. And then the artist comes along and he does an imitation of an imitation uh, of, of the form. So it's twice removed from reality. This battle uh, would, let me put it this way, this battle would continue to this day in one way or another. And uh, art, uh, Plato uh, was much more influential than Aristotle. Uh, all the way up until the time of Thomas Aquinas. And even after Thomas Aquinas, I think Plato was still more influential when it came to art. And that meant that the artist was always imitating something he never saw. He could never see because no one ever saw this realm of forms. No one knew what it was, knew where it was. Plato couldn't tell you where it was. He couldn't tell you the relationship between God and forms and so on and so forth. Uh, this, this, this had a crippling effect on art. Now, on the other hand, it helped art because it provided forms. And the man who understood uh, best, I think, the idea of forms was Pythagoras, and he felt that they were numbers. Uh, and numbers had a special meaning for him. So the number one, we know what the number one is, uh, but for him, the number one meant unity, and unity meant God. So that's God. That's number one. What's, what's number two? Number two is diversity, which is creation. So that's the many. Now, at this point in history, now we're coming back to the beginning of the 19th century when Hegel and Beethoven are young men. They started to understand this in terms of time. Because before that, time has no meaning for Plato. It has no very little meaning for Aristotle. Aristotle said time is the number of motion. But at this point in history, largely because of Vico, the, you've, you've already discussed Vico, a, a number of Germans went down to Naples and they every time you go to Naples, they say, you've got to read Vico. And they started reading Vico and they realized this guy is important because he's talking about history and he's talking about time. And nobody really talks about that anymore. I mean, anymore. No one has talked about it in any significant fashion in the history of philosophy. The only exception will be St. Augustine. Um, Christopher Dawson said, Augustine was the man who discovered time. Well, if he discovered it, everyone forgot it because <laughs> it, re it reverted back to Plato. Plato was the main influence. So from, a, from an aesthetic point of view, you have uh, the temple as one of the first artifacts. The temple is the place where you worship God and it's also made up of divine figures. It's made up of the triangle, it's made up of the square, and it's made up of the circle. And these are significant forms, and the temple is there, and that's why it's there. That's why you worship it there. And that was where the beginning of drama happened. Drama happened in front of the temple, and so on and so forth. With this, 
you had the idea of symmetry. Symmetry, you know what symmetry is, but the formula for symmetry is basically A, B, A. So you've seen churches, facades of churches where sometimes there'll be a little steeple, a big steeple, and then a little steeple or wings of a building or whatever you want. It's, it's, a, it's just your face has symmetry. You got two eyes and so on and so forth. Uh, now, at this point, you could talk about symmetry in terms of time. Now, that's not apparent. And mimesis is not apparent in time. Now, Aristotle talked about drama. And the soul of drama is the plot. And drama takes place in time. But drama was also associated with music. Because when they put on the drama, there was music. And there was probably dance and there was probably singing and there was poetry as well. It was all wrapped up into one form of worship that took place outside of the temple. Uh, but now with music, you're dealing with it in time. And so what you began to see was an interpretation of A, B, A in time, in a temporal format. And what you had was the concerto or the sonata. Or so you would have a fast movement and then you have a slow movement and then you have a fast movement. Okay. Now, at the same time this is happening, so we have this in terms of aesthetics. We have probably one of the greatest, I'm, I'm going to go out, uh, I'm going to say the greatest breakthrough in musical mimesis in history took place in Germany at this time. And the man who did it was Beethoven. Now, nobody does this by themselves. And Beethoven in this regard was dependent upon Johann Sebastian Bach, who was one of the greatest musical geniuses of all time. So when Bach uh, started composing, uh, you know, about 50 years before Beethoven was born, they had a problem. There had been a problem in music ever since Pythagoras figured it out. It's called the Pythagorean comma. And basically what it means is if you start off uh, with, and try to modulate, if you, you try and create something called the circle of fifths. So if you move a fifth, begin in C, you move a fifth down, fifth down, you go C, F, A, C, D, E, F, G, C, D, E, F, you keep going around the time you get to the bottom of the circle and suddenly if you move again uh, you get into these sharps and, and flats and it starts to sound funny it's out of tune because natural tuning will not lead to a complete circle of this everybody knew this Pythagoras knew it and nobody could figure out how to solve it until Bach came along and Bach is in many ways the opposite of Beethoven because Bach was did it by himself. I mean, it, he, Beethoven was a public figure. The aristocrats uh, were fascinated with Beethoven. They supported him. Uh, Count Lopkowitz uh, paid for the uh, the Third Symphony. It was dedicated to him. It was about Napoleon, but it was dedicated to him. But anyway, Bach's off all by himself. And you leave this guy alone, and he figures there's problems we got to solve. And he the the way he solved that problem was writing the well-tempered clavier, 
which is basically, he worked mostly on the organ. He had other groups, but most were on the organ. And he could tune the organ so that you could modulate from one key to another all the way around to have a complete circle of fists. Now, this means you can integrate the diatonic scale and the chromatic scale. Now, the diatonic scale is basically the plot. It's the plot to music. It is what we would call the plot because there's drama in the diatonic scale because of those half steps. It's not equal. The diatonic scale has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when you get to the seventh note or the seventh chord, you naturally want to go to the fifth, to the back to the, to the eighth, which is back to the note that you started on. It's just a natural inclination you have when the mind reacts to the musical scale. Now, that provides the drama, but the chromatic scale, which is half steps, and they're all the same, so it's half steps. Uh, there's no drama, but you can add emotion to this. And so what Bach did with his well-tempered clavier was create a, a vehicle for musical mimesis that had both a, a, a plot and emotion plugged into it where you could modulate from one chord to another. And every time you modulate, there's a mimetic effect to it. So this is what Beethoven inherited. He had a father who was a drunk who beat him. Thank God. <laughs> if he hadn't beaten him, he probably wouldn't have practiced the piano. <laughs> and when he practiced the piano, he played the well-tempered clavier. That's what he played as an 11-year-old with his father, you know, drunken father beating him. And he had issues with his father that went into the music. He was, you know, depressive, had a lot of psychological, emotional problems. But he did learn that well-tempered clavier, and he learned how to modulate. And because he learned how to modulate, he had a vehicle that would allow an enormous breakthrough in terms of emotion. Emotion. So now um, we have these world events. Before Beethoven, you had two options. You could play in church or you could play for the prince in the court. And now there's a different option because the entire world is being affected by Napoleon and Beethoven decides, I'm going to address that issue. I am going to take this giant step forward in terms of my Mises. I'm going to put Napoleon into music. Well, it's not exactly Napoleon. It's more the feeling you had watching the world being conquered by Napoleon. And it's the Third Symphony. Beethoven's Third Symphony, and it's called the Eroica. And Beethoven was going to dedicate it to to, Be to Napoleon. Actually, put, wrote that on it, and then Count uh, Lupkowitz decided uh, my aristocratic friends will not like that because Napoleon is basically stealing all their property. So he changed <laughs> it and he dedicated it to Count Lupkowitz because he needed Count Count von Lupkowitz. I met a descendant of Count von Lupkowitz, by the way. Uh, Nick Lopkowitz, who used to teach at Notre Dame, and I met with him and we had a, a discussion in 1989 after the fall of communism about that. So I, I have a kind of connection here to this whole movement, this whole uh, idea. Now, Beethoven, no one had ever heard a symphony like the Eroica before this. And all you have to do is listen to symphonies by Haydn, 
especially or Mozart. And you realize this was a big breakthrough. This is completely different. No one had, no one had this experience. And you had the experience that you were actually living through what Europe was going through and you were you were experienced the emotions. You had a direct access to the emotions that everyone felt because of Napoleon. That's mimesis in music. That's what we're talking about here. He can create states of mind. Music goes right to your soul. So he can create states of mind in you where you are experiencing exactly what is happening in history. The full type of emotional experience right there. That's what he did. He got, he shocked everyone so much that he wrote the fourth symphony, which was basically a step back to Haydn, which is basically formal. When you, when you have uh, Haydn, you, there, there are different, like the London symphony is a step toward Beethoven, but then he steps back and it's form. It's pretty much, uh, the form has been established of a symphony and we're going to make a little variations here, but it, you're, you're listening to the form rather than to the, the content. If you listen to Bach's chromatic fugue and fantasy, you're not, it's not baked, it's not Napoleon. Obviously Napoleon didn't exist then. It's not uh, Frederick the Great. Uh, Bach did meet with Frederick the Great. It's a, it's him working out a puzzle that he already worked out with the, uh, the well-tempered clavier. How can you integrate all these chromatic scales into a diatonic movement forward? That's basically, it's technical. And as the most, for the most part, that's, there's some type of musical value to it because he, he was incapable of not writing music because he was a genius. So everything he wrote was music, but it's a different type of music. It's formal. It's more formal than the third symphony. So then uh, uh, Beethoven takes another step forward and he writes the fifth symphony and everybody knows the fifth symphony. And the fifth symphony I am saying now embodies the dialectic because this was the big breakthrough in German philosophy at this point. It wasn't Hegel, it was Fichte. And Fichte's important because you never, in, in history, you never do what your contemporaries do. You always do what someone older than you did. And since Beethoven and Hegel were the same age, they really didn't know each other. They came from the opposite ends of the German spectrum. One was a Lutheran, one was a Catholic. One came from the Rhineland, one came from, uh, uh, well, Hegel ended up in Berlin, but he came, he came from the Protestant part of, uh, of, uh, of Germany. But Fichte is the one who came up with the dialectic. And the dialectic is symmetry. It's logos in time. Now, remember, Fichte was a seminarian just like Beethoven. All of German idealism is Lutheran seminarians. And so what, what, is the, is, what is the main issue here that we're talking about? We're talking about how, does the, how can we talk about the Trinity and the Enlightenment at the same time? Is there a relationship between the Trinity and the Enlightenment? And the answer is yes, it's the dialectic. The dialectic is the attempt to understand the Trinity in scientific terms, what they would call scientific terms. 
So the dialectic is similar to what I just told you about Pythagoras. It's the one, you have one, which is undifferentiated being, which is God. And then suddenly God creates, and now you have two, which is nature or diversity. Now, that's the first two parts. What happens when you take the two of them together in, in time? The third part of the dialectic. What's that? What happens when you add one and two? I know this is a challenging question for you, for you Harvard guys. But what is one plus two? Who knows? Raise your hand if you know the answer to that question. One plus two. You must, you must be a math major from MIT, right? <laughs> What's the answer? Three. Three, right. He's right. <laughs> I knew you guys. I knew you guys were smart. <laughs> and what is three? What is three? Trinity. Three. The Trinity. It's the Trinity. Now, this is the point here. Uh, we take this back a step. The main, the main breakthrough at this time uh, was aesthetics. Aesthetics. And so Fichte, uh, the, you, the dialectic begins in Fichte's mind with Spinoza. And Spinoza said uh, he was a pantheist. Everything is nature. Nature is everything. God is nature. That's what a pantheist says. Okay, that's the beginning. So the beginning of the dialectic is there's nature out there and it's real, but it's not conscious. And then you have two, then you have consciousness entering into this equation. And the second stage of the dialectic is it's conscious, but it's not real. So from development, first stage of the dialectic is you when you're a child. Okay, it's the world is real, but you don't have any control over it. You simply think the way your parents think. You're not conscious. Then you become an adolescent, and then you become conscious of yourself. But as soon as you become conscious of yourself, you realize you're not part of the universe. You were part of the universe. Everything was fine when you were a child. You were part of a bigger operation. And you never thought about it. Now you're thinking about it, and as soon as you start thinking about it, you're not part of it. So, so part two of the dialectic is that it's, you're conscious, but it's not real. Now, part three is this is where Fichte talks about that uh, we have to move to the third part of the dialectic. In other words, we have to create something that is both real and significant or conscious. Now, what would that be? That's what a work of art is. And this is why aesthetics is an important issue at this point, because you start off from a point of view of art. The stage, the first stage of the dialectic is a block of stone, block of marble. The second stage of the dialectic is you have an idea. Well, you're, that's real, the block of marble is real, but it doesn't mean anything. And your idea is meaningful. You've got an idea of Moses, for example, that no one had ever had before, but it's not real. It's just in your mind. And so what does the artist do? He brings those two things together and he creates something that is both real and significant, which would be Michelangelo's Statue of Moses. That's what art is. That's what the dialectic does. That's in a sense what the Trinity does. And that's what 
Fichte says the, the third stage of the dialectic is action. And that's also, by the way, what work is. So you see, you begin to see here the significance of the dialectic, the significance of this moment in history when suddenly you had a, a, an idea that ex could explain a lot of different things. And that's precisely what's happening at this point in time. Now, I'm saying that you didn't, Beethoven and Hegel is the same age as Beethoven when she was younger than Fichte. And so as a student, he and Schelling and Hölderlin and all these people, the Romantic movement in Germany, they hear about Fichte and it immediately makes sense to them. And they start to think, maybe we can develop this. We can, we can develop this. I'm saying that Beethoven, everyone had shared consciousness at that time. That's how Beethoven could write a symphony about Napoleon because everybody knew who Napoleon was and everybody was concerned about it. And I'm saying this is what Beethoven started to realize in his music. Okay, you could take the form, which is A, B, A, and you could do it in time in music, but you could have the second A be slightly different than the first A. And I think the first manifestation of this would be the Fifth Symphony. Da, 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 da. You're, so you're confronted with fate. This is it. This is the reality. It doesn't care about you. This is simply the world as you exist. Faith then leads to consciousness, the second part of the symphony. And then the third part is where, is what you would call, so it's, it's fate, it's consciousness, and the third part you would call determination. And that's the, where the, you're now at a higher level than you were when you started this thing. You're at a higher level now. And that is the whole point of the dialectic. That is the whole point of life. The whole point of the rosary. Uh, have you ever prayed the rosary? I'm not going to, you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, <laughs> it goes, the joyful mysteries are followed by the sorrowful mysteries, which means it's suffering. So you start off happy and then you're involved in suffering. And then it's resolved with the glorious mysteries where you've been through the suffering and now you're at a higher level than you were before. And so it's better that better to go through the suffering and achieve a higher level than not to suffer at all. That's 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 the that's the meaning of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's implicit in the Trinity. It's implicit in the Rosary. It's implicit in all of creation because it's, the Trinity is the source of all creation. So, as I said, these were people who were talking about the Romantic movement. They were part of the Romantic movement, and the Romantic movement was a reaction to Spinoza and Newton as well. So the world is not simply this cold place of abstract laws. It's nice, especially in the summertime. And so, especially if you live in Vienna, where you want to get out of the city. And so this is the sixth symphony, which is basically composed around the same time as the fifth. They were, they were both around the same time. The sixth symphony, uh, you may or may not be familiar with, but uh, this was the absolute most significant breakthrough in mimesis in, in musical history. And he understood it as such, and he wrote program notes. So in case you didn't get what the story <laughs> here is, I'm going to tell you what it is. And so the first part is you leave Vienna and you go out into the country. Now, Vienna is a dirty, smoky, filthy place. 
and it's a nice day out, and you go out in the country and you feel better. That's the beginning of the sixth symphony. And that's him entering the countryside. And so he's walking through the countryside and somebody comes across a group of peasants and the peasants are having their festival and they're dancing. And they keep dancing and everyone's having a good time and suddenly a thunderstorm rolls in. And I can't hum the thunderstorm for you, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I could. We, we listen to it. You listen to it, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay, good. So, so the thunderstorm rolls in and there's tension. And this is the second part of the dialectic. It's suffering. It's alienation. And then, but you actually feel your, there's a thunderstorm. And not only do you feel there's a thunderstorm, you know when it's over. And the sun comes out. And you know this. How do you know this? I mean, he described it, but you actually feel it. You have that, this, this is what mimesis in music is. You have had this experience. And then we go to the dance uh, of gratitude for this experience, which is the glorious mysteries, which is basically now the closing of the dialectic and the closing of the symphony. Okay, now nature is not such a bad place. It's not the nature of Spinoza. It's not the nature of Newton. It's the romantic nature where even in strife, even when nature does its worst, for example, like a thunderstorm, man's consciousness can deal with this and can reconcile it to something higher and have better, better because you're, you're through it. Now, there's one other guy, well, there are a lot of people, but one other guy born in 1770 was William Wordsworth. William Wordsworth had a friend, uh, Samuel Coleridge, and they went to Germany because they wanted to study exactly what we're talking about. Uh, in other words, romantic, romanticism, German idealism. So they go to Germany and they come back and Wordsworth writes a poem and it's called Daffodils. And if you were my age, you would have to memorize it when you were in grade school, which I did. So I know it now. So I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and hills. When all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle along the Milky Way, they flashed in never-ending line along the margin of the bay. A poet could not but be gay in such jocund company. For off, uh, but uh, I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth to me the show had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood. They flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Now that is the same thing as the Sixth Symphony. That's exactly the same thing as the Sixth Symphony. It's a romantic confrontation with nature. And what he's saying here is, I gazed and gazed, but little thought. What wealth to me the show had brought. You don't understand it while you're there, while it's happening. Your mind has to absorb it. And that's the imagination. 
and the culmination of this union. And he ends up, once your mind absorbs it, you're a, a unified with nature and you dance with the daffodils. That's the whole point of that image at the end. There is not, you're not alienated, wander, I don't, you're no longer wandering lonely as a cloud. You've united with nature, you've come to some type of understanding. That's the dialectic. The English are allergic to metaphysical thought. They, they ridicule it because they can't do it. And, uh, but this was the breakthrough. Coleridge did more to help them in this regard than any other, any other person. So that's, that's the moment here. So after Beethoven wrote the Sixth Symphony, you had storms. Now, storms in, in music. I, did you play uh, the Wilhelm Tell Overture? No. Okay, well, that's another storm. You can yeah. play that uh, afterwards. And right. you'll, Rossini obviously was influenced by Beethoven. And then uh, you can go. Now, before uh, Vivaldi wrote uh, a concerto called Tempesto a Mare, the, the storm at sea. Well, it's not a storm at sea. It's an Italian playing the violin really fast. That's what it is. <laughs> and Vivaldi, when you listen to Vivaldi, you're listening to form more than content. The, he was a great violin player, and that's pretty much what comes across here. He's a virtuoso on the violin. There's no storm. Sorry, I don't see a storm in the same way I see a storm in Beethoven. I feel that storm in Beethoven or Rossini or the classic example, the best example, I think, is the finale for Swan Lake. Yeah. Did you play that? Yeah, we listened to that. Okay, now that that is exactly what I'm talking about here. You be th this is a ballet, and my son uh, and daughter-in-law danced for the Oklahoma City Ballet, and I played this for him, and I explained to him what was really happening, and he said, "You just ruined Swan Lake for me." <laughs> <laughs> And how did I ruin that? If you watch, I don't know whether you watch the YouTube video. There's a YouTube video of the finale. I think it's the, some Russian ballet. It could be the Bolshoi. I don't know. Uh, but so the music is perfectly clear about what's going on. That's the theme that goes throughout Swan Lake. And that's the way it starts. And it's the theme, it's in a minor key, and it's played by an oboe. And now the, it, we're coming to the final culmination of this story. Story doesn't make any sense, but we're coming to the end of it, and everybody's running around. And at a certain point, you realize, wait a minute, it's a storm at sea. Well, okay, that makes sense, because we're talking about Swan Lake, but where's the sea? Where is it? You can't see it, because it's a ballet, Okay. And so they're running around, and then finally, we have the resolution. He modulates, Tchaikovsky modulates into a different key. He plays that same theme, but not as a minor, in a minor key, uh, as a major, and he plays it with a trumpet. Now, when you do this, what you mean, what you're saying here, imagine that theme as a little boat, because that's the way it's portrayed. It's a little boat, and there are big waves. And the waves are crashing. The little boat has to go up to the top of the wave. And it just makes it. And it goes down again. And it goes up again. Is it going to flip over? That's the crisis. That's what's going on in this piece of music. And finally, it's resolved. The boat makes it to shore. And at that point, you hear the triumph. The triumphal theme is now this being played in a major key on a 
on a trumpet instead of on the oboe with that haunting sound. It's triumph. Good has triumphed over evil. The boat has made it into the shore and the sun comes out. Just the same thing as Beethoven. The sun comes out and you can feel the rain, the rain kind of dripping off the rigging and we made it. Well, that's not what happens in the ballet. <laughs> in the ballet, <laughs> the swan throws herself in the lake and then the guy throws himself in the lake and then the, de the demon throws himself in the lake or he dies. So it's completely contradicts. This is why there was always problem with the end of Swan Lake. This is why the communists didn't like Swan Lake. <laughs> they wanted an upbeat version, and they're right. It is, they, the, the communists were right because it does end on an upbeat note. And so what happened with the communist version is basically, um, what's her name? What's her name? The, whatever, the black swan, the, the lady, whatever her name is, and the guy, they go off, uh, take their fist up in the air, and they're going to go off and smash capitalism. <laughs> and it's much more appropriate to the music than jumping in the lake. Believe me, suicide is not what this music is about. It's not about suicide. It's about hopefulness. It's about triumph. Uh, and that's the, the, the type of mimesis that we're talking about here. Now, the whole point of the book that I'm writing on aesthetics is that beauty is a transcendental. And beauty gives us access to God. It gives us, it is an attribute of being and God is absolute being and you have access to God's being when you see beauty, even if you can't explain it. And for large periods of history, artists could do things that philosophers could not explain. Plato being the classic example, could not explain what was going on. And so what we had here, to get back to our friend Hegel is exactly that. Okay, now we have to get into the details, a little bit of detail here about Hegel. Hegel is writing the Phenomenology of the Spirit, uh, which is his meditation on the Trinity. Uh, if you're a Catholic a theologian, they recommend if you're going to meditate on the Trinity, that's above human reason, the power of human reasoning. So you better do something like contemplation and ask for divine aid if you want to have a clear understanding of the Trinity. Well, turns out Hegel was not doing that. He, instead of doing that, he was having an affair with his chambermaid and um, the chambermaid got pregnant. And here's the crisis of Hegel's life, okay? He's an ambitious guy. He wants to become a professor at the university. This is a time where this would be incredibly scandalous to have an illegitimate child, probably ruins your career by doing that. At the same time, he hears that uh, his chambermaid tells him she's pregnant. Napoleon shows up in Jena and <laughs> defeats, the, uh, defeats the Prussian army. It's a huge crisis. He feels guilty about what he did. And so what does he do? he falls back on the default setting that he began with, which is Luther. He's a Lutheran seminarian, remember? They study Luther, and Luther was in the same situation. Luther uh, was a priest, a Catholic priest, uh, who could not control his passions. And the more he broke with the church, the more unruly his passions became. 
He was uh, incredibly angry. He was an angry guy, flew into rage lots of times. He could not, uh, uh, he was uh, drank a lot. And when he drank, he got, uh, so, uh, he, he was uh, overpowered by sexual temptation. And at a certain point he realized, can't deal with it anymore. And he married a nun. Now in doing this, uh, this was sexual liberation in the 16th century. You, you and your Lutheran buddies would bust into a convent and drag the nuns out and offer them to the highest bidder. Uh, and Luther offered the best looking nun at that convent, uh, convent to the Archbishop of Mainz. Now, people who offer women for sexual pleasure to other people, they're known as pimps. <laughs> and so I would have to say that Luther was a pimp. Now, I hope the Lutherans aren't offended when I say that uh, because it's true. He married... Uh, a nun by the name of Catalina von Bora. Her name, nickname was Keta, and he used to call her Keta, which is the German word for chain. So he had some sense that he was enslaved by his sexual passions, and he couldn't stand it. So what he did was blame God. It's God's fault that I did this. And he wrote, shortly after he ran off with the nun, he wrote uh, De Servo Arbitro, which is the enslaved will. So basically, blame God. Hegel does the same thing, okay? He introduces evil into the dialectic and makes God responsible for evil and in a sense deprives man of free will. That's exactly what Luther did. That's what Hegel did. And at that point, he wrecked uh, the project of German idealism uh, because you can't, bring evil into the Trinity. You have a distortion of the Trinity. The first person, one of the first people to notice this was Ludwig Feuerbach, who told to, wrote a letter to Hegel. He's one of Hegel's students. He wrote him a letter saying, um, you know, this functions without God. You don't really need God for the dialectic. And Hegel kept hemming and hawing about whether you did. It functions all by itself because you introduced evil. And because it functions all by itself, it's a machine. And one guy who really thought this machine was a good idea, uh, the mechanistic understanding of the movement of human history was Karl Marx. And that's how you had dialectical materialism, which is a contradiction in terms. That's when it went off the rails. Uh, sorry about that. But all, everything I said about aesthetics is true. And I think what I said is true as well. In other words, you had an achievement in art that the philosophers could not explain. You, had an, you achieved something in art that, the, that Beethoven achieved in the third, fifth, and sixth symphonies an understanding of the dialectic, an understanding of the relationship between the self and the infinite that Hegel tried to do and failed to do because he wrecked his own project by his sexual uh, inc incapability, his inability to subdue his own sexual passion. That's it. Great. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Peace.